0: All right, we're on. Ariba, how's it going?
1: Good, how are you?
0: I'm doing fine. I know I asked you before as well, but I uh, hope you're feeling better. I know you were sick.
1: Yes, much better.
0: Okay, that's good. Um, how's how's life in the U.S.? You're in Massachusetts, Cambridge. How is that? What are you up to?
1: Um, life is good here. I think they ha- they're doing a really good job containing... Um, coronavirus so there is social distancing in place and masks so there's not much you can do out here Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's pretty good a lot of activities have opened up so you can go biking or uh, kayaking and stuff like that so that's pretty much what I've been doing outside work of course
0: that's good that's when when did you move there by the way
1: uh July 1st so it's been almost a month on Canada Day Ironically.
0: Canada Day and then you were in the U.S. for uh, the Independence Day, right? Yes. Nice. So obviously as an industrial engineer, um, I know you graduated I think back in 2017, right? So yes. I wanted to know before anything, um, there are different streams and different branches that uh, industrial engineers can can choose to take, right? And one of those branches is is human factors so i really wanted to know you know what um made you decide to to take on that uh that, that stream and if you can kind of explain to to other people maybe in a nutshell layman terms what human factors uh really is and what it's about
1: yeah so um just to Clarify, as an industrial engineering student, I'm sure you're aware, we were never forced to pick one stream. You could just, you could select courses from the various streams that they offer. So that's human factors, information engineering, and operations research. Mm -hmm. I believe that's the three. Um, I picked human factors engineering, and I also took some courses from information engineering Uh, Mainly because um, back in ESP, if you remember, that's the engineering and strategies, engineering strategies and practice course. Yes. That's the design course we did in first year. Um, We were uh, all supposed to read this book. Now, I don't recall the name. I think it was called The Human Factor.
0: I think it was called The Human Factor, and uh, it it talked about the different... uh basically uh, ladders or different dimensions.
1: Yeah, the tech ladder, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was by Kim Vicente and it, the book started off with him being an industrial engineering student at U of T uh, and the work he did and the concepts that were um, presented in the book. I could really see applications of it in real life, even as a first year student. And then my project for that course was in healthcare. We were designing a haptic feedback arm for stroke patients. So I could really put everything we were learning in the course in that one human factors related lecture to practice. So that's really what sparked my interest in human factors engineering. Mm -hmm. And then as we took our courses in second year and in third year, it just got better from there
0: interesting and so you know for, for those that for those that don't know so what is the main goal for let's say going into human factors let's say in the context of healthcare is it to because for example if you look at operations research then you look at what are the what's the most optimal way uh, to, to get a specific let's yeah. say output right so when we're talking about human factors is the main concept around it in order to make um, make life easier for its users? Yeah,
1: exactly. So not just easier for the user, designing with the user in mind. A lot of times, often you see people, uh, designers, engineers, designing without even knowing how this product will work in mm-hmm. real life. So with human factors engineering, your goal is to reduce safety sorry increase safety don't reduce safety <laughs> no,
0: don't
1: do no. yeah so it's uh it's really to um increase the ease of use and the use safety of the device so that's um what i do basically in healthcare safety is a priority so that's where the use safety comes in so we don't want any design elements on of the user interface to lead uh, to patient harm or to user harm where harm can be like hospitalization or um, injury or even death.
0: Right, that makes sense. And uh, you said that in first year you did a project around in, in the medical field around the haptic arm design. Did, did you say it's a haptic? Yeah,
1: so it was with Toronto Rehab. Um, they were, so basically what it did was we designed this Glove that fit onto um, a patient's arm who has had uh, strokes. A stroke patient usually have low mobility, and the uh, the uh, the glove type of thing we designed had um, these motors that would vibrate if there was motion. So it was just to help patients increase their mobility post stroke. Hmm.
0: That's interesting. Again, bringing in concepts uh, for, for the end user, with the end user in mind, obviously. Did, did this start at the beginning uh, of World War I or was it World War II where they would blame the crashing of uh, fighter jets on the pilots?
1: Oh, I don't even know when it started. All we know is that I know in uh, aviation it's gotten better. Um, the culture in aviation they're moving away from the blame game, but in healthcare we still see that a lot. Uh, Before Fresenius Medical Care where I am now, I was working in a hospital environment at University Health Network and it was pretty clear based on conversations I would have with people on the unit or my participants where they would be blaming the user themselves. but yeah, I think aviation has gotten much better and healthcare still has a lot of catching up to do because we still play the blame game. Um, the, it's just the respect we have for clinicians um, and the expectations we have for them. The culture is just not supportive of opening up about issues and medical errors. Yeah,
0: which is which is a shame, honestly, because if you look at, let's say like you mentioned, the, the aviation industry, the, the quality level and the tolerance for defects is, is so low. We've, we've actually not not only reached a Six Sigma level, but even exceeded that in, in mm-hmm. terms of the, the number of defects or the number of crashes that happen. But then when we look at healthcare, you know, in, in the US, I know the stats are, are, are crazy in terms of the number of deaths that happened due to accidents.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I think, um, was it To Er as Human? Uh, the documentary, which is the book that turned into documentary, I think it quotes that there are more people that die of um, use-related issues or medical error, preventable medical errors daily than if people were dying in plane crashes. But if people were dying in plane crashes, the consequences are so much more versus compared to like the preventable errors that we see at hospitals the consequences aren't that high and we're not doing too much about them
0: interesting and from from your perspective how would you how would you think this this is going to improve in the future and what's i know it's not a black and white solution really but what are some of the ways that you think this can be reduced is it by having more dire consequences for mistakes or is it just by making equipment and and devices foolproof or how do you think that would stand out
1: so as a human factors engineering engineer the first thing to remember is that it's not the user's fault Mm -hmm. so we wouldn't we do the complete opposite we wouldn't want high consequences for medical issues or medical mistakes because understanding that it's not a person's fault, it's usually a system uh, error. Uh, So it's the system that failed and not the person. So the goal is always to design a system that supports the human being, understanding that in a hospital environment, there are a bajillion uh, interruptions going on. It's a very dynamic environment. So you cannot expect your user who so for a clinician their priority is patient care you can't expect them to be on for example a ventilator screen and read every single word of it you can't put a paragraph on it because the expectation from the clinician to be reading that while they're taking care of the patient is just i think that's (laughs) a stupid expectation their priority is the patient so we need to design something that seamlessly fits into their environment, rather than asking them to change how they do things in order to fit this new device into their environment. So I think we're already doing so much better than what it used to be. Change is not overnight. it's It takes time. Um, the good thing is that I'm seeing more and more um companies hiring human factors engineers because they're recognizing that it is an important um skill to have and it's not just a regulatory requirement Um, in the states to release your device you do need to go through a human factors engineering process Um, but now manufacturers are realizing that they need it outside that regulatory environment you want your customers to be happy and if you design a product that fits them rather than the other way around, you'll have more customers, so more money. On a hospital side, um, I I can't speak for numbers because I'm not in the hospital, uh, I don't work for a hospital anymore, but I'm beginning to, when I was leaving UHN, I was beginning to notice that there was more awareness of human factors engineering. There are more people in leadership with human factors background And I think that's really the key. We need to have more human factors, people in key leadership positions, because they're the ones who are going to uh, cheerlead for us and make our pathway and advocate for us. And then obviously then leading by example, when you do some good work in one unit, they then talk about how the human factors, workflow improvements had made their processes better Reduce patient times. They speak to other units. Those units then come to the human factors engineering department, saying, "Hey, I heard about the work you did in, say, the post-op care. We want something done for our unit too." And then we send more people to the next unit. So it's a little bit of both.
0: That's 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 interesting. You you mentioned that there is a lot of executives and uh, key people in leadership positions. I wouldn't
1: say a lot, (laughs) but not not a lot,
0: but you have more people
1: yeah
0: okay so well that that leads me really to asking him because you also mentioned that uh, when a product or, or a process is is to be released, especially in in a sensitive industry like let's say aviation or, or healthcare or uh, nuclear power plants, um, a, a human factors engineer would would also be part of that process. Mm-hmm. so is there a high level methodology or, or framework or a series of steps that You would be able to explain or go through regarding what it looks like in in order to have that approval stamp from a human factors engineer?
1: So, on the um, manufacturer side, if you're trying to release a product in the States, you need to have your FDA approval. So, if you're doing a 510K or a de novo, Um, then you need to, the FDA has a guidance on human factors engineering, and that involves you including human factors from the very beginning at the start of product development or even pre-development. So a lot of my projects right now are actually pre-development. You start with user research. You need to understand your users, your use environment, um, how this product will work, what are the user needs? What are the environment needs? How will whatever you design fit into the big picture? You then uh, move on to create your risk analysis. So it's a, it, the whole process is really a risk-based process. You create your UFMEA. So that's the use let's see so is it the failure modes effects effects analysis? analysis? yes, yes. Okay. failure modes effects analysis mm-hmm. or any form of risk analysis really but a use related version of it to capture all your potential use errors so anything that could wrong you put that in your risk analysis and then based on the severity of harm um, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with risk analyses there's usually like a a severity, a probability of occurrence, and all those different. Yep. And then you factors.
0: multiply them to get your risk factor. Yep.
1: Yeah. So the difference between a regular UFMEA and the use related one is that we don't care for probability. It's more if it's severe, you need to mitigate it as uh, much as I see. As can. So you
0: take away the probability. It's just, yeah. okay, it's just severity and it's severity also frequency,
1: yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, we don't care about frequency or probability yeah. of it. Yeah, Uh, so it's mainly based um, on the severity of harm and then you develop your mitigation to reduce that severity of harm or eliminate it from happening. Um, You do your formatives, you do your validation. Um, Your validation is done on a production ready device, meaning that your device is almost ready to be marketed and that's when you do your Uh, use-related testing uh, where you make scenarios that are similar to real-life tasks and then you um, walk not walk the participant through it you give the participant task as if they were doing it in real life and then they interact with your device perform all the tasks
0: kind of like a pilot test
1: yeah almost And yeah, based on your validation results, uh, you write a justification that, oh, this issue that we saw is acceptable or not. Uh, If it's acceptable, then you submit to the FDA. And then the FDA gets to decide whether your device is actually safe and effective. And if it is, they give you that stamp. Um, So human factors engineering is one part of your bigger FDA submission. On the Europe side, um, you follow IEC 62366-1. That's their um, guidance for human factors engineering for medical devices. And then in Canada, I'm not sure if they have a released guidance, but I know the process is very similar to the FDA and um, Europe.
0: Interesting. And for for those who are who are listening, what would you say is one or two of the most critical factors that would be necessary to make a good human factors engineer.
1: Sorry, you mean like skills?
0: Yeah, skills, yeah.
1: Someone who likes to or is good at talking, like it's a skill that can be learned but um, in my line of work, you have to really talk to people, talk to end users, talk, talk to managers. Those are
0: important, people. okay.
1: So comfortable talking as well as comfortable reporting.
0: Interesting, okay. Yeah, I, I ask because it's, it's really interesting for me to, to know, you know, what, with, with all the emerging technology that's, uh, that's coming in and all the buzzwords that we know, right? Like neural networks, you know, machine learning... Um, you know, blockchain technology, things like that. Which I don't think blockchain would play a big role. But how would you say emerging technology or just the future is is going to be affecting uh, an area or field like human factors?
1: So I can only speak for human factors in healthcare.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm beginning to see things like. VR technology being implemented in training we are using data analytics to predict issues so when you release a product there are complaints coming in you can use data analytics to actually uh, make prediction algorithms to predict what kind of issues you can expect from certain clinics or um, things like that. On the device side you can use AI to fully automate things, which then has concerns for human factors, because you really do want the human involved in the whole process. So it would be interesting to know how that changes um, the medical device industry and human factors engineering. Uh, But yeah, we are moving towards a fully automated type world. you see devices making decisions for the human being now. Hmm. Um, and again, the human factors around it is how, how automated do you want your device to be? Is 100% automation good? Do, don't we want the surgeon or the clinician to be involved? We, do you want them to make the ultimate decision? Or do you want the machine to make decisions for them? So it's questions like that arise um, around machine learning or AI.
0: Yeah, I I was reading up on some of the things that AI can currently um, automate. Which when we say AI is a very broad term, but if yeah. we go down to you know neural networks, which is really you know involved with deep learning, then I heard that any task that would take a human being one to two seconds to, to do or to detect, that can be automated as of, as of today. So then there are a lot of, you know, like you mentioned, there are a lot of use cases for this uh, in the healthcare industry, especially as it relates to, um, you know, identifying uh, patterns, identifying-
1: yeah. For example, uh, tumors. On X-rays, right?
0: Uh, yes, exactly. Tumors, right? Exactly. So that's why I was interested because I think human factors is also another area where most of the time people put a lot of um, people put a lot of focus and attention on the human being to do particular tasks. And with this, I guess that that cognitive uh, workload that you put on a human would, would decrease. So then the nurses and the doctors would be able to put more of their focus and their energy on taking care of the patients rather than running around, right?
1: Yeah. But on the flip side, what if you didn't train your data, right? Or what if there is, what if the device, the, the the result you got isn't correct? So the level of how much decision-making you want to be automated that would be a human factors question, and it would be based on discussion on with the doctors and the clinicians, the end users um, I, I'm not-
0: I agree i agree don't don't you think though that the more data that we have the more the, the larger our you know training set can be, and then if we have a large training set and we use a test set as well to ensure that we get the results that we want, then at some point it's just going to be seamless.
1: I think it's a huge, I think I agree with you in the sense that it would really um, take away the cognitive burden, but I, I still think from, and maybe not all human factors engineers think of it that way, but full automation and full control on a device is, it's risky. Because like you're playing with a person's life, right? So I can definitely yes, see that. Yeah. It, yes, it would be nice if the machine could, you know, spit out, hey, here's a tumor or this is what you're flagging. That's great. But it would be a combination of the end user and the machine's decision to what happens next. Yeah. Instead of just the machine doing all the work and the doctor just signing it. Do You get what I mean? It's it's more the balance.
0: Yeah, I definitely see what you mean. And it would be very dangerous if the system is fully automated in such a way that you can't even take control uh, over yeah. it. But if there is a way to override the system at times yeah. when it's necessary, then that would provide that sort of control that you're talking mm-hmm. about, right?
1: Yeah, so that's that's the type of um, concern. Of that have. We have. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well that's that's really interesting and uh, what about for yourself uh, your, your own journey are you looking to continue you know going deep into this field or are you looking to come up and do more consulting work around this what's what what's the what's the horizon look like for you
1: um, within um, human factors engineering you mean yeah. yeah so I was in consulting for what four or five years mm-hmm. and uh, Three months ago, I moved on to the client side, so the manufacturer side, and um, you never know what the future looks like, and really, you never know what opportunities arise, but so far, I'm really enjoying um, being on the manufacturer side. Consulting was a lot of fun. You got to work on many, many, many different projects, so that gave me a wide range of different devices that I could work with, and applications of human factors, engineering, but now I'm really getting getting into the deep roots of everything, which I'm enjoying. I don't know. I'm keeping my options open. Maybe post grad. Um, maybe back to consulting. So I don't have a definite answer for you.
0: No, that's fine. I was just curious uh, because obviously, you know, like you said, there there is a lot of back and forth, and there is a lot of uh, different ways to go about this. And uh, I also know you've been. In, in the human factors kind of uh, body of knowledge for, for some time now, for a long time now, so definitely important to get your insight on those things. Um, we're at about you know, 28, 30 minutes now. Do you have any closing things you want to talk about or uh, any other topic that we didn't touch on?:
1: No, not really. Um... Yeah, if any any of your listeners have uh, any questions regarding human factors engineering, it's a very, um, it's a new industry, not many people know of it. And at school, it was taught as more prototyping interface design versus my job is all risk-based regulatory. I do do interface design. I do have designers implementing it, but um, yeah, what I do is not really taught at school. Mm -hmm. Uh, at least in first, second, or third year. So, um, yeah, if anyone has any questions about human factors in healthcare, the regulatory process, how we do things, can definitely reach out.
0: Well, I think someone might ask this question. Uh, I wanted to know your opinion on this. What's the difference between UI and UX? Some people think it's interchangeable, but it, it isn't.
1: Yeah, so I'm not a UI UX expert. Um, I'm not sure how other companies define things, but uh, where I am, human factors engineering is different from UI UX. Uh They have their own team, but user interface, I might be wrong, so don't take my word for it, but UX is more the user experience and not just limited to what's on the interface. Yeah. So you're tracking the interaction and their experience and not just what's on the screen.
0: That makes it's sense. I mean, I that whenever, whenever people you know, talk about how iPhones are easy to use, it's because there was a lot of work done in its UI. And I think the work that is done in UI, the product, product of that is, is UX, which is the experience that the user gets from that interface. So if we look at it by extension and maybe I, I might be wrong here, but the work that you do in, in the hospital, for example, uh, all the testing, all of the process that you explain that you go through, wouldn't, uh, you know, the, the outcome of that really be for UX? So you're creating a certain experience for the yeah. users who are in the hospital, the patients, for example? Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for your time. I know you're, uh, you're busy and, uh, you just, you just moved in. So hopefully you'll settle in. You said you're not feeling well. So I'll, uh, let you go get some rest. I uh, hope you feel better soon, but thanks for joining. It was really good to hear from you.
1: Oh, no worries. Thank you. Thank you for uh, having me on your podcast.
0: Of course. Take care. Girl.
1: All right. Bye.
0: Bye-bye.